That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us, personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein, and today is episode 99. It's titled, Money is Story. There is a story about money and how it started that economists tell. It's more of a myth, really. The story goes that in the beginning, there was the barter economy, where people traded what they had for what they needed. These trades could get complicated, as perhaps the things you had to trade wasn't desired by the person who had the thing you wanted. So it might take several trades before you could arrange the deal. Adam Smith, in his book Wealth of Nations, published in 1776, was one of the first to share the creation myth of money, where the desire to exchange and the specialization of labor by North American Indians and other cultures first led to bartering and eventually to currency in the form of something precious that everyone wanted that could be used to facilitate trade. The initial currency might be shells or hides or sugar, but at some point the people settled on precious metals, first in the form of irregular ingots and in time standardized coins. The problem with this story is there's no evidence to support it. Sumer is one of the first documented ancient urban civilizations. It existed in southern Mesopotamia within present-day Iraq around 3500 BC. The Sumerians had vast temple and palace complexes that were staffed by thousands of craftspeople, farmers, shepherds, and bureaucrats. The Sumerians wrote on clay tablets in cuneiform script. Much of what they wrote were business contracts involving the workings of the temple and palace complexes, documenting debts owed such as rents, fees, and loans. These debts were denominated in silver shekels, with one shekel equivalent to a bushel of barley. The debts were rarely settled in silver, though. They were paid with barley, goats, or even furniture. Why? Because there wasn't much silver, and much of what existed was closely guarded within the temple walls. A debt is a promise to pay. And these promises or promissory notes could be sold or used to pay other obligations. In other words, promissory notes, not metal ingots, were the first form of circulating money. But most money didn't circulate. It was simply accounting records documenting debts and credits. It was virtual. Something as simple as a tab at a tavern or restaurant is an example of virtual money. 5,500 years ago, money was not coins, but credit. Coinage didn't come into existence until about 700 BC. And systems of credit depend on trust. The anthropologist David Graeber writes in his book, Debt, the first 5,000 years, quote, the value of a unit of currency is not the measure of the value of an object, but the measure of one's trust in other human beings. That is no different than from today. 
Money is trust. And most money is virtual, units of accounts documenting who owes what to whom. The biggest difference between the financial system today and the Sumerian economy is the complexity of business contracts. While simple promissory notes still exist and they can be sold and and sort of used as a virtual currency, now we have more complicated and esoteric financial instruments such as repurchase agreements, reverse repos, credit default swaps, collateralized debt obligations, and many others. Still, even these complex vehicles depend on trust, as I discussed a few episodes ago, episode 97, The Great Financial Crisis. So circulating money in the forms of coins and paper currency has always been just a small fraction of the amount of virtual money that tracks debt and assets. What is amazing about that is back in episode 96, Five Lessons from a Stoic, I shared about Bill Bonner and how I had watched a video of his by 45 minutes where he was terrified and very, very concerned about that there was only a small amount of paper currency and and coins, dollars, than there were virtual debts and assets. And so if any of you had all these debts and people actually wanted to get paid in dollar bills and coins, there wouldn't be enough. And that would cause a currency collapse and all kinds of havoc. But this has been the situation for over 5,500 years. Most money is debt. It's virtual. Graeber points out in his book that during the reign of Henry II, around 1160 AD, most businesses, governments, and households kept their accounts using the monetary system established by Charlemagne 350 years earlier that denominated assets and liabilities in pounds, shillings, and pence, even though none of Charlemagne's actual shillings and pence coins remained in circulation. That suggests it doesn't really matter what money's unit of account is as long as there is agreement among the various parties. And the entities that did the most to ensure agreement on the proper unit of account were federal governments. They did this by demanding taxes be paid in a particular nation's currency. Graeber writes in in regards to currency, it makes no difference whether it's pure silver, debased silver, leather tokens, or dried cod, provided the state is willing to accept it in payment of taxes. Because whatever the state was willing to accept, for that reason, became currency. It isn't even necessary that currency used for accounting matches the currency used to pay taxes or the currency in circulation. But it is certainly more convenient if it does match. That is why employers tend to pay their workers in whatever currency the state demands for payment of taxes. One aspect of money that has been there from the beginning is the need to determine money's worth. The Sumerians designated a silver shekel to be worth one bushel of barley. For much of the 20th century, $35 was worth an ounce of gold. The fixed exchange rate between the dollar and gold ended in 1971, primarily because there were too many dollars and not enough gold, making it difficult for the Nixon administration to keep the price of gold in dollars from climbing. In in retrospect, that's unsurprising, seeing that gold has to be discovered and mined while the supply of dollars is potentially unlimited as new dollars are created whenever banks make a loan 
as I discussed in episode 94, how money is created and destroyed. Now the value of the dollar floats relative to other currencies and commodities as investors, businesses, and governments, and households constantly make judgment as to the worth of various forms of money relative to each other. While the official value of money continually fluctuates in the currency exchange and commodity markets, those fluctuations pale in comparison to how the value of money adjusts in our own minds depending on the context. We might have no problem spending a dollar on a chocolate bar, but we feel perturbed to have to pay a dollar for an iPhone app. It's the same dollar, but it's a different context. Seth Godin, the renowned marketer, writes, A person's valuation of money is based on the stories we tell ourselves about it. Our bank balance is merely a number, bits represented on a screen, but it is also a signal and symptom. We tell ourselves a story about how we got that money, what it says about us, what we're going to do with it, and how other people's people judge us. We tell ourselves a story about how that might grow and more vividly how that money might disappear or shrink or be taken away. In a different post, Godin points out questions we ask ourselves when purchasing non-commodity items to determine their value to us. How much pain am I in right now? Do I deserve this? What will happen to the price in an hour or a week? If it changes, will I feel smart or dumb? What will my neighbors think? Does it feel fair? And what sort of risk, both positive and negative, are involved? I felt this profoundly, this fairness of money, when I was in Cuba. When my son and I were there, the first day I I shared this back in few episodes ago, the experience in Cuba and how we spent almost a third of our money the first day. And so it was getting evening. It's like, we got to find somewhere cheaper to find some, somewhere to eat. And so we went to a bakery in Old Havana. There were two lines. We got in the first line and somebody pointed out to us in Spanish that we could go to the line that wasn't for those that had sort of the, the subsidy coupons that we could pay cash. And so we, we went to the other line and just we pointed out five or six little pieces of bread that we wanted and just, just handed them the money and they handed us back. We handed kooks or the convertible money and they handed back to us, the worker, a bunch of moneda nacionales. And I think we paid probably about the equivalent in a Cuban pesos, about a dollar twenty-five. A few days later, we were in the town of Trinidad and we went into another bakery because we wanted we wanted some bread. It was pretty good. Sweet bread. Pan dulce. And we went to the counter. Just wanted two little pieces. And the worker said it would be three pesos in convertible nationales or convertible convertible pesos. In other words, we, we, it was equivalent to about $3. So we paid about $1.25 in Havana for five or six pieces of bread. Now this gentleman wanted $3 equivalent for two little pieces of bread, more than I would pay in the United States. And I, I said, that, that's really expensive. And he just, he sort of brushed me off. And, and, I, could, and I, I was mad. I really, I mean, I, I, didn't, I didn't yell at him, but I walked away disgruntled because I felt that it hadn't been fair because the price had been anchored, $1.25 for five or six pieces of pan dulce. And now he was charging me, ripping me off for $3. And I, and I went and I talked to other people in the street and asked them, you know, what's bread cost? 
And they, they admitted that that was, that was too much money for that. But a month later, I'm in New Orleans, and, and I had gone out to get some breakfast to carry back to the hotel for L'April and I, and I decided I got some eggs and said, I just want a, a croissant for to, eat, to put my eggs on. I went to a bakery in the French Quarter, and they charged me $5 for a croissant. But it didn't make me as mad as it does at is that bakery in Cuba because there my price wasn't necessarily anchored. I knew I was in the French Quarter. It was going to be expensive anyway. It probably was going to pay more than I should. And so it's the, the context matters in terms of the, we're always making these value judgments. Part of it's mental counting. It's part of the anchor. What price is anchored? What was our expe- expectations and whether we see, consider it fair or not? Let me pause here to share some words from this week's sponsors. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one program and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. With everything getting more expensive these days, it's wise to find ways to cut costs and boost performance at the same time. You can do that with NetSuite. And by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com david. That's netsuite.com slash david, netsuite.com slash david. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. I know in my profession, I've seen how important it is to get quality candidates to interview. And LinkedIn can help you with that. It's not just a job board. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. On LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. So hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash David. That's linkedin.com slash David to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. So what is your story of money? What stories do you tell yourself? What is a narrative that you use in managing your financial assets? My stories, I grew up what would be really be considered poor by U.S. standards, if you measure by income. My, I was a single-parent home. My, my mother worked multiple different jobs 
to raise five kids. She sold Tupperware. She made dolls. She sold maps. She sold real estate. We were on food stamps. We were on welfare. When I went to little Catholic school I went to, I was one of only three students in my class that, or entire grade that got free lunch. We'd get a little coin that we could trade. It gives us a little coin token that you could get a, a free hot lunch. And when I was about 14, I decided I was going to be rich. Now, I didn't really know I was poor. I, I knew because I didn't have a lot of comparison. In order to know you're poor, you, you sometimes need somebody that's rich. And, and other than there weren't a whole lot of rich people around us. It was just sort of a lower middle class, single family home neighborhood. But I, wanted, I decided I wanted to have more money. I wanted to be rich. And since my mom sold real estate, we had all these, these, these sales tapes and books. And so I read Zig Ziglar and I read The Greatest Salesman in the World and The Richest Man in Babylon. I set goals. I read affirmations in the mirror. I fell asleep listening to this positive thinking tapes. I tried a number of different businesses that I've shared in earlier episodes from graph analysis to, to research to window cleaning. I used to I used to dream, I, I, my business was to, to wash windows, but how does a rich man who's rich that earns his money washing windows, how does he dress? Well, I, I had my outfit. I had these overalls with these L.L. Bean shirts, and I drove a Mercedes in my mind. But by the time I was 18, I was burnt out on money. I gave up the get-rich schemes and spent a year after high school washing dishes in a downtown hotel. And I worked with, with men and women who came from even poorer areas of Cincinnati than I did. And, and I watched, and we washed these dishes from what, what we thought were the rich folks who ate at this fancy hotel restaurant. 20 years later, I'm eating at the same restaurant, and I realized that, that probably a lot of them aren't really that rich. Then I moved to Mexico. I was about 19, and I saw what poverty really was. I got my first lessons on that proper attitude toward money. And the Yucatan families would invite us into their tar paper shacks with roofs so low I couldn't stand up straight inside. And these families would offer me a stone to sit on because there were no chairs. Then they would feed us some of their dinner, usually a thin soup with corn tortillas or perhaps some beans and eggs. Usually, if they didn't feed us food, they would send one of the little kids out to go get us a soda, usually orange soda. And in Mexico, I learned no matter how poor you are, you share. I also began to get the first inkling that money is like a river. It flows, sometimes fast and sometimes at a trickle, but it, it is never really ours. It's, it's virtual. It just sort of comes in and goes out. It spits on a screen. It's ironic that after getting so burnt out on money in my youth, I managed it professionally for many years. And it was so abstract. The dollars were just figures on a page. It was like a game. All I knew how to do, I just wanted to get the numbers higher, to, and, and in particular, the performance returns. Did I outperform the market? That's, that's what I care about. It was just, what can I do to get these numbers to change, to make my clients happy so they could grant more scholarships, protect more of the environment, and help more of the needy? But I would never see the money. We rarely see money. 
in our age with direct deposit, online banking, and credit cards. We can go for weeks and never have a dollar bill in my pocket. It's just figures on the screen. It's abstract. And one reason it's abstract, but because there's enough. And money becomes very real when your balance is close to zero. I've been there. But by and large, money is virtual in its abstraction. And that abstraction helps us remember that you know money's not really mine. It's, it's like a river. And it shouldn't be dammed up. It should be flowing. It should, it should be shared with others in need. And, and one of the points in, in Doug Rushkoff's book that I talked about last week, Throwing Rocks at the Google School Bus, is a successful economy has a lot of money flowing through it. That instead of it all flowing to the biggest companies or the top 0.5%, it's better if it flows through and there's multiple, multiple transactions. I was thinking about central bankers, Janet Yellen, and the stories they tell themselves. Clearly, money in their case is also abstract. It's at a huge different levels, trillions. But they're still looking at it on a spreadsheet. And so when they do these unorthodox things like setting negative interest rates or quantitative easing, it's all an experiment, and it's all an abstract experiment. And they live by the stories they tell themselves. Stories are what drive the stock market. The leading narrative is the central banks have our back. When that story changes and we begin to doubt the effectiveness of central bankers, then the story will change. And when the story changes, that's when markets can get more volatile. Back in episode 27, what is the right price? I talked about how the price of something is not always based on its cost, but on the value we, we perceive. And, and Godin echoes his points. He says, cost isn't abstract, but value is. And I, I've seen this with the Money for the Rest of Us hub. I've gotten emails from, from individuals that have said, you are grossly undercharging for, for the value you're providing. And I've had others that just <laughs> don't want to pay $20 a month. They don't see the value. So... And it isn't based on cost. I said a price that I thought was is fair for for members of the hub, but it's set at a price so that most people believe that they're getting excessive value for what they're paying. So in conclusion, think about the stories you tell yourself about money, the stories you tell yourself before you buy something. And if you don't like where those stories are taking you, then change the narrative, change the story so that it has a happier ending and you're more satisfied. You can get show notes for this episode at moneyfortherestofus.net. That's also you can sign up for my insider's guide. Well, each week I will email you links to the articles I discussed, the books I discussed in the podcast. In that insider's guide, I also send you a weekly summary article. You can sign up for that at moneyfortherestofus.net. Or to make it easier, if you're U.S.-based, Listener, if you text the word insider, I-N-S-I-D-E-R, to the number 44222, and you can immediately sign up for the Insider's Guide. Earlier, I mentioned the money for the rest of us hub. What is it? It's a growing community of 300 members that use this membership site to make better investment decisions, to make better long-term asset allocation decisions, because they know what they can earn investing. 
It's help in terms of adjusting their portfolios based on market conditions. And these adjustments can be very, very rare. But it is better to understand what is going on in markets in terms of valuations, in terms of economic trends, in terms of the level of fear and greed, trend and momentum. And occasionally, but infrequently, to make decisions to either reduce risk or increase risk based on the conditions, the opportunities, and the risk. You can get more information for that at moneyfortherestofushub.com. I recently got a comment from a Hub member that said the difference between the Hub and other financial sites is he trust me. Money is trust, and hopefully over time, I've earned your trust, and if you want additional help, that is what the Hub is for. It's a place that you can learn to tell better stories about money so you can make better investment decisions. That's at moneyfortherestofushub.com. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education only. I've not considered your specific risk profile. I've not provided investment advice. This is simply general education on money, investing in the economy. Have a great week.